welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as normal, you'll find the two of us giving you our thoughts on some matters of the moment from in and around the investment space. Uh, by, uh, by us, I mean me, Chris Bound, the editor at Hotel Analyst, and Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. If you're new to this podcast and you like what you hear, by all means, do listen to some more back catalogue podcasts. And if you'd like to read more, then do pop along to hotelanalyst.co.uk, where you can take a look at uh, what we should produce in more detailed written report form. This week, we're going to be still looking at some of the first quarter results from some of the big uh, uh, hotel groups in the, the space. And let's start by having a look at the results from Wyndham and Choice two largely franchised operators with very much substantially US-based businesses, though Wyndham does spread out around the globe a little bit more than choice. Um, But both of them have had quite a good uh, pandemic relative to some of their peers, and they're now uh, performing extremely strongly and had a very good, very good first quarter, which was far better than they they expected. Um, The result is uh, they're going great guns, their occupancy is up, the prices they've been charging for their rooms have remained strong and are also on the way up as well. And as these are asset light operators, they they own none or next to no uh, hotels themselves, suddenly they're starting to spin off lots and lots of cash. Um, And the question then is what to do with it? Do you spend it on building your business further? Do you pass it back to your shareholders in terms of in terms of dividends, or do you start buying back your own shares? So uh, happy days are here again for Wyndham and Choice. It would seem. Yeah, a very happy spot for both of them. I think um, they are both dominant in market segments that are um, uh, have proved um, their resilience during the lockdown demand crash. Um, they are predominantly leisure 70 percent in the case of Wyndham and 80 percent in domestic US for choice and even that remaining less than a third um, of business travel that's mostly blue collar Wyndham calls it everyday business travel and that has also proved significantly more resilient than the uh, white collar or or corporate travel Um, and it's been um, well, I was going to say it's moved very fast to recover, but it never really actually went away. What when hotels were allowed to keep open, the, these uh, white van drivers carried on staying in the hotels. Um, so it's been a very, um, a very resilient bit of the business indeed. So um, in addition to that being leisure orientated and orientated towards um, the resilient business. Um, travelers um, they are in select serve um, overwhelmingly so uh, with Wyndham it's 99% um, 96% choice um, and if you look how that compares to their global major rivals so IHG is 86% select serve with its massive holiday in express portfolio in the US um, Hilton's 57% and it's just 29% at Marriott. So very much orientated into a a sector which um, of course has much lower demands on labor. Um, And therefore that, you know, in a a period when we've got these soaring labor costs, that positions them very well again. Um, And uh, Wyndham were um, quick to crow about the resilience of this segment. 
And what they said was, look, how we've performed during the COVID lockdowns. So they, they have they had a chart in his presentation and that had a 30 point to 20 point gap between the RevPAR of SelectServe brands um, when you put up against the higher end chain scale brands. So um, the sort of upper mid scale and um, upscale and luxury, um, which uh, in a um, SDR really other um, categorize these. Um, and this has or was also the case in other downturns. So post GFC, they said uh, um, select serve was down 14%, um, whereas upscale was down 19%. So, you know, not quite as big a difference, but a significant difference. And even post 9-11, um, there was a three percentage point difference in terms of the downturn, 12% versus 15%. So it's a pretty good um, track record there for resilience for these sectors. And in addition to all that, the other card both companies have to play is that they've got decent exposure to the very fashionable extended stay uh, segment. So Choice uh, launched Everhome Suites in January 2020, and this was the first brand in the mid-scale extended stay segment for about a decade. Um, they've already got Woodspring Suites, and Wyndham has under wraps still um, a new economy extended stay brand um, called at the moment project echo um, and this is looking to get at least 300 hotels over the next 10 years so they've got got great exposure here as well so you know there's there's a lot of reasons why these companies ought to be feeling chipper right now i mean the question is what will happen as we get into the recovery and whether their rivals who uh, perhaps are arguably more leveraged into um, the recovery whether they will outperform uh, we'll have to we'll, we, we will wait and see I mean certainly to an extent choice has answered that question itself because um, it talked about in its presentation being more focused on uh, revenue intense hotel segments and hotel locations and it's been kicking out uh, hotels um, which are predominantly at the low end of the chain scale segments and replacing those with more upscale things that deliver higher royalty levels. I'm not saying upscale hotels, I'm saying things which are slightly you know, less at the economy end. Um, and net net economy has been declining within choice. So in uh, 2020, um, economy net unit growth was minus four percent um, and uh, overall unit growth this year is likely to be flat um, relative to 2021. Um, Wyndon on the other hand is not quite as down on the whole um, well it talks very much more about um, select serve which of course goes all the way up to the sort of upper mid-scale segments as well and uh, um, but it is expecting a healthier growth rate to its system of between 2% and 4% this year. Um, and it's very big on this select serve piece and sees this as being unlocking all sorts of opportunity. And to your point, Chris, about, um, you know, what are they doing with all this 
cash they're throwing off Wyndham is saying yeah if we get an opportunity to buy we will buy they have some quite strict I mean uh, parameters in which they engage with the deal it, it has to be earnings positive after the first year so th that that's quite a significant bar and of course they're not going to start getting into uh, real estate they've just um, in the process of flogging off one of their last assets they're exiting management exited a management deal as well so um, very much focused on this franchising model both of them um, in a very good spot um, and you know they're very powerful return on capital employed the one thing I will say for this is that the question mark that is there is how powerful their brands are and i think we're going to see a bit of that as we get into the recovery and get a feel for that whether they have invested enough in terms of cleaning up their estates certainly holiday inn has had uh, you know a good going over for about a decade now and one of the reasons that uh, net unit growth at ihg hasn't been great has been how much they've been kicking out um I, and in fact a lot of those they've been kicking out have been ending up with Choice and Wyndham so I do wonder you know in terms of whether Wyndham and Choice have a little bit of work to do still in terms of tidying up the should we say the brand quality but uh, that aside I think this is a, a very positive situation right now for for the franchises. Now we're going to take a look at the latest results from two of the big uh, online travel agent groups Booking Holdings and Expedia. Now these groups spent the uh, time during the pandemic uh, wondering what to do next, wondering kind of where their role was. It, it felt um, as they kind of hunkered down, tried desperately to cut costs while still retaining developers and um, and trying to figure out their kind of their next role. Um, of course, there was sort of um, certainly a move towards um, consumers booking more direct uh, during the pandemic, directly with hotel groups, and that that threatened to hit. Booking Holdings and Expedia and their various their various brands. Um, so uh, coming in, of course, bookings are flying up in volume. So both of these uh, groups had quite a good quarter in terms of the numbers going uh, strongly back up again in, in volume and uh, and revenues. Uh, and and with more. Uh, activity on their platforms of course they've got greater opportunity to now actually a a b test uh, some of the things they thought they'd uh, they'd come up with during the pandemic downtime to uh, improve their margins uh, improve the conversions when people jump onto their websites and so on but one thing the two of them are both very interested in doing uh, they said was to gather more uh, alternative accommodation onto their platforms um so whether this is at uh, under under the uh uh, Verbo, the uh, Expedia sub-brand, which we we hate the sound of, but but has been uh, very successful in growing a good portfolio of alternative accommodations, or whether it's uh, under under Booking, uh, and they they like to list stuff uh, under Booking.com with uh, with the alternatives right alongside the hotels um, that they uh, they also promote. Um, I say both are saying seeing a uh, continued upswing in demand for that kind of product and they're both out there keenly looking to grab more of those those uh, owners that perhaps might be otherwise putting their product on their airbnb and um, signing them up to their platforms uh, so both seem to be have got their mojo back and um, certainly honing the way they they pull in the 
their customers and the way they look to get extract a little bit more revenue out of each of each of them as they go um expedia also interesting because um they they are also and and they're starting to shout more loudly about it now a very large b2b player they are already doing a lot behind the scenes for uh for a whole variety of of travel companies including a lot of work behind the scenes for marriott uh, and they've recently also signed up uh, intercontinental hotels for the same sort of arrangement that they have uh, successfully executed with Marriott. So a very big, big B2B business behind the scenes as well. Yes, we've been somewhat bearish about the prospects of the OTAs and it looks like we've got a little bit of egg on our face to an extent um, as <laughs> we come out of this looking spectacularly strong. However, I still maintain that the medium to long term prospects of OTAs are nowhere near as rosy as they have been for the past two decades. And the principal reason for this is that uh, growth is going to be much tougher um, so whereas their their soar away stock market valuations are, are based on having uh, a growth in the high um, teens um, I think they'll be lucky to get you know into the high single digits in the years ahead and this is going to eventually come back and um, bring them back down to earth in terms of their their share price um, um, and market capitalization I think particularly for booking an Airbnb perhaps less so for Expedia um, it's certainly we're not suggesting that uh, the OTAs are about to collapse or anything like that and I think there's a very healthy business out there uh, for them but certainly when you know even uh, five years ago we were still worrying that they were going to commoditize the hotel market and that hoteliers would simply be be slaves um, to um, the OTA masters um, that really looks unlikely now um, and I think the the power balance has shifted quite significantly and you can see that in terms of the commission levels being charged and it's very hard to see how they're going to start pushing those back up again um, I think I think you making a very good point with how this has switched with Expedia and again this is something we've talked about previously um, Expedia becoming a service provider rather than being a sort of interface between customers and the suppliers mm. uh, so I mean Expedia talked about this 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 obsession with owning the, the customer and they're, they're saying okay we get it you, you don't want us to own the customer um, we are caught prepared instead to be a genuine partner to you i mean previously the ota line about being a partner was sort of give us all your customer relationships and we'll continue to drip a little bit of commodity level um <laughs> income your yeah. way that 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 was how um you know that the, the the market looked um for the last two decades i, I think it's different now um and expedia is is plowing the way um in this new approach this service approach um, and they launched uh, a platform called open world at their um, big shindig they had in Las Vegas at the beginning of May and uh, this this new platform is giving um, partners um, so you know the, the suppliers hoteliers et al um, access to Expedia's tech so if you're a hotelier and you say you just want payments and service they will make the necessary bits of software available for you to do that and I think as you said Chris that you know we saw this with um, um, how 
Expedia back in 2019 signed a deal to white label Vacations by Marriott. So when you go onto the Vacations by Marriott website, not to be confused with the timeshare thing, Marriott Vacations, which (laughs) is somewhat confusing. Um, But Vacations by Marriott, um, uh, which is the Marriott Hotel Group, that all of the uh, air travel and the car hire and all of that stuff is all done and indeed the hotel booking bit itself is all done by Expedia um, and and it just goes through but you do if you do it on vacations by Marriott site you actually get your Bonvoy points whereas if you do it at the, you know the same holiday at the same price um, and I've made that mistake myself actually you don't get your bonvoy points well, although I, I got expedia points but they didn't seem as good actually for some <laughs> whatever reason but they, they have sort of jazzed up their their loyalty thing i think as well as one of the things they're doing but anyway they did that the other thing they did which has been um a big thing has sorting out the wholesale rates so all of marriott's wholesale uh, content and availability has been with expedia since october 2019 and now hoteliers have always struggled trying to um, get consistent pricing that single image pricing um, which the, the, the is highly desirable to you know, price parity um, to try and facilitate that to make that happen they've they've given Expedia control of all the wholesale rates to stop them leaking out and having breaches of price parity um, so I think that makes a lot of sense so we can see lots more of this kind of stuff and it makes a lot of sense and so Expedia now is calling itself a technology company focused on travel um, I think in the heyday of OTAs um, there was a risk really of seeing them as a travel company facilitated by technology so it, it, it's it's flipped back to how it should be and you know hoteliers aren't as we know very good with tech but if they've got appropriate partners this is this is good for both sides um, and you know it, it done well hotel groups don't need to be um, commoditized um, so I think this is we're seeing a very sort of um, different environment now as we come out um, and this will continue now I suspect what we're going to see is a lot of uh, uh, commoditizing of the unbranded hotel space and this is going to give a lot of uh, uh, room for booking um, to sort of keep pushing up their margins but uh, I think in many ways that's going to lead to these you know where appropriate these unbranded properties are going to seek refuge with the branded hotel chains where they can come under the umbrella and get the the better deals with the OTAs so I think uh, um, in ironically you know success for the OTAs is is now going to create some um, success for for the branded hotel chains so it, it is does look like we are in that position of genuine partnership. Now we've also been taking a look this last week or so at uh, what's going on in the uh, third party operational space, the hotel management groups and um, particularly as investors seem to be taking an ever closer interest in these businesses um, as they kind of look for uh, a way to get returns, better returns from the hotel uh, sector at large. Um, and there's um, uh, an investor, Advent International, who have previously taken a, a good stake in uh, Interstate, um, which, you know, the Anglo-American um, hotel management group. They've recently um, also taken a partnership with a company uh, called GHL, which is going to uh, help GHL 
uh, expand across Central America. So GHL already operates 62 hotels across kind of Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, and so on. Um, but uh, with Advent's backing, the uh, the idea is that uh, they will again be able to expand, and uh, in in the way that Interstate has with uh, with Advent behind them. Of course, uh, these markets are markets where people like Marriott, Intercontinental, and so on, are looking to grow their portfolios and put in put in far more branded hotels. So they love the idea of being able to work with a partner who knows how it works, how they like to have their hotels run, um, and happy daisy, and they're happy to sign agreements to uh, to expand into these. Uh, rather daring new parts of the world as long as they've got a trusted partner alongside them um yeah i think we're seeing um more and more of these third party operators it, it's it's becoming something of a mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. a trend one might say um and um, I mean, we've been it's one of these things which is sort of long-term um movement and we've been covering it for more than a decade I and mean, we've, we've talked about bricks brawn and brains um you know we had sort of two decades ago the the bricks and brains split well more than two decades ago almost three decades ago the bricks and brains split with marriott divorcing from host um, and now we've got this bricks brawn and brain split where the the, the management operations piece um, is being separated out as well and it's got to that tipping point I think in Europe particularly in the UK but we're also seeing it in you know continental Europe as well um, prime star hospitality in Germany is uh, a good example of a company that's getting getting real real traction um, the challenge for the third-party operators has been the the leasing structure um, prime star has you know in germany solves that by being prepared to take on the lease liabilities directly but for anglo-saxon firms um, like ambridge interstate um, they just don't want that uh, that leasing on on their balance sheet and i think you talk to uh, interstate chris um, for your piece where you you at the at the Hyatt in Leeds, which is uh, technically a lease, but but not a lease when it comes to interstate. Yeah, so yeah. It's, a, it's it's a, it's it's a lease for the investor, but it isn't a lease for the operator. Well, yeah, I mean, so I spoke with um, Steve Terry, who's the senior vice president of, of development in state Europe, and um, he said, you know, they've they've spent several months uh, evolving this lease that's not a lease, um, and it satisfies the uh, the incoming landlord that's gonna that's bought this development project, uh, which is going to be the Hyatt in Leeds. Uh, they're a UK. They're called UK Commercial Property REIT. So they're obviously a kind of a institutional landlord, if you like, uh, and and they want to be seen to be having leases uh, um, on on the properties. So they've got some kind of um, comfort for the the investors in their REIT that there is a a, a long term in fairly fairly well guaranteed income stream. Um, but um, uh, Steve said to me, you know, the the, the interstate in the UK is not prepared or cannot take uh, a traditional lease um, onto its balance sheet because obviously there's a big big liability there so they've uh, they spent some months uh, in in darkened rooms with law expensive law firms and they've created some sort of a variable lease that uh, seems to satisfy both sides the uh, the landlord thinks they've got a lease and that they're happy with and interstate believes they've got some kind of flexibility which means they're not um, too too bound up in um, in onerous uh, outgoings over the coming years, but 
they don't have to stick it on their balance sheet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So interesting to see some creativity in and around this kind of whole, uh, how do you manage the contract? How do you set the contract up? Uh, but uh, um, having done, having said all that, uh, Steve said he'd, they'd, they'd love to do some more similar sorts of deals in the UK. But frankly, he much prefers to do regular hotel management agreements. That's that's what that's, that's what they're quite happy with, and they're quite happy to continue with, uh, certainly in the UK. Yeah, and Interstate are quite focused on working, you know, with private equity. Uh, David Anderson. Uh, uh, Steve's boss um, spoke at the IHIF in Berlin earlier this month, and he said that uh, you know, there's a few things in 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 the pipeline in terms of uh, private equity funds looking to have um, you know interstate as the operator, which is which is a departure from the usual uh, uh, sort of private equity. Uh, modus operandi of of buying a platform and building a company off the back of that. Um, it looks like they're increasingly now willing to sort of invest in the in the assets, but bring in a separate third party manager. Um, so that that's going to we'll see how that goes. I don't think that's for everyone. I think I've certainly spoken to a number of private equity. Um, businesses that aren't that interested in in that approach um, uh, unless there's some sort of co-investment um, that's not something interstate will do some of the other third-party managers will co-invest though and I think they're likely to end up getting the um, the, the bulk of these sort of private equity deals but there's still probably going to be plenty of stuff to play for um, for the likes of interstate um, just as well given its humongous and, and mm, growing absolutely. size. Now let's get to our five star and no star awards for the week and we are giving five stars this week to Austria which has uh, pivoted in its views on Covid. wasn't so long ago I had to wear a special type of mask to enter the country and go on my skiing holiday but uh, Austria has removed all its COVID entry restrictions and it means that international visitors can now enter the country without needing to show a proof of vaccination of recovery or have a negative test. Great news. Yes, that, the, the, the angels are singing at the <laughs> repenting sinner, I think. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's um, you know, it's a what an about turn. I mean, this was the country which was forcing its citizens mm. to take a vaccine. Um, it was actually um, it was criminalising its own citizens if they didn't um, go forth and you know have a jab in the arm. Um, and now they're saying, "Oh, well, it doesn't matter mm. anymore. You can come in." I mean, oh dearie me! I think that well, I think we do need to have a little bit of a conversation about some of the <laughs> approaches that were adopted. I mean, we've prattled on before about lockdowns, etc. And but you know, this compulsory vaccination business mm. is, a, is is another one. So, um, but. You know, it's all prodigal son. Um, you know, his uh, they've behaved badly, but they now come back repenting. So it's uh, and it's Austria. no stars for the so-called cost of living crisis. Let's argue. Let's both argue. There's no such thing. A few. Yes, there's inflation. Yes, prices are going up. But frankly, no one complained when they were going down. <laughs> I think you're a bit harsh saying there's nothing at all in terms of cost of living crisis. I think yeah. people are feeling the pinch, and there are some people who are, you know, are, are genuinely um, yeah. um, suffering under the, the, these rises with energy costs, etc. But um, in 
context of where we are as industry commentators yeah there isn't um, going to be much impact um, from the cost of living crisis I would argue on the broader hospitality market people are still going to come out and spend the money now um, what I would say is that there are two things here one is that uh, we are still in a situation where real wages are going up or at least they were up until the end of March so the latest data this is in the UK from the Office for National Statistics shows quite clearly there is positive real wage growth up to the end of that period now I think as we've seen inflation was just hitting nine percent in the UK I think that may dip into a negative level um, of wage growth but you know it's the gap that counts and we've had 18 months of positive pay growth an extraordinarily strong pay growth actually in in um, the summer of uh, 2020 and the ONS makes all sorts of caveats about its numbers with that given that uh, you know there's a lot of people in furlough etc etc but nonetheless there is there are people with which have had this uh, this this cushion from you know having enjoyed pay increases um, and also there's a cushion in terms of built up savings so you know estimates are in around about ten thousand pounds per household is is savings now those at the you know the very bottom end of the income uh, scale in the country I you know I get that 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 isn't the case for them and there's indeed you know some genuine hardship and suffering there and the government does need to do something um, for those people but for the, the overwhelming bulk of people no um, and I think what we've got is a situation which is still remarkably positive and people are still willing to go out and spend so from that point of view yeah from the from the impact on our sector there there I, I simply don't buy into this cost of living crisis as it is at the moment the thing that you we have got coming through is inflation and it's how bad that inflation piece is going to be now I talk about this in my piece actually I've tacked it onto the end of my story about Wyndham and uh, choice because of the the, the uh, select serve piece and how how that uh, plays out in terms of is select serve going to be more vulnerable if if indeed that you know we are have got a cost of living crisis or you know the cost of living is is going up um um, is it more vulnerable than say the more upscale segments and so you've got people like IHG for example saying look we're in upper mid scale and above it's really not going to touch us because our customers are so wealthy um, I'm not sure I totally get that because I think when we you know the key thing is whether we go into a recession or not and if we go into a recession I think people will trade down and you know historically as the numbers clearly show um, select serve actually is in the, is in the stronger position um, the one thing I do agree very much with uh, this was Paul Edgecliff Johnson, the CFO at IHG, speaking at a UBS uh, held event uh, last week. I very much agree with him. What really matters is unemployment. If people are in jobs, they will carry on travelling. They will carry on travelling for their job, and they will carry on travelling for a leisure. Even if they have, uh, you know, money is tighter, um, they. 
we are seeing clearly that they're prioritizing travel so i think that's the thing to watch is this uh, unemployment number um rather than all this this fluff and nonsense that we're getting at the moment around the cost of living crisis um in terms of what it's going to do for the demand of um, our sector and the final piece i will say before people <laughs> turning this podcast off because <laughs> listen, listening to me prattling on about this is in terms of the nature of inflation and people are getting very excited about this too excited in my view um, and there are reasons there are significant risks on the upside as well as the downside um, and I would point people to um, UBS chief economist Paul Donovan who is an expert on inflation and the causes of inflation is indeed written a big fat book on the on on that very topic um, and he argues that uh, we have already reached peak inflation in the US we're close to peak inflation in the UK and we'll get there very soon peak inflation and continental Europe probably later on this year and he says this peak inflation it gives three reasons why inflation is going to come off he's saying firstly demand is fading um, and we had an extraordinary level of demand as the economies reopened and you know the ducks weren't in a row to satisfy that demand and that pushed up prices well that that excess demand is falling away now as things get back to something like normality in terms of that uh, supply uh, piece um, secondly base effects um, which means that in it you know to keep inflation at a high level you have to have ongoing price rises well is the price of oil going to double again um that is what would have to happen to maintain inflation at the current level i don't think so i don't think there's any sign of that we're not going to see the you know the huge increases in in other costs as well carrying on and they remember they have to keep going up it's not the case of staying at the level they've got to um to to keep inflation the inflation increasing the prices have to be increasing and the final point and this was something which i was fairly new to me actually um in 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 terms of the the nature of you know people talk about oh we're heading for a you know this classic 1970s situation where prices go up and then the the wages are bid up and prices go up again to counteract those higher wages and then wages go up more to counteract the higher prices and you get this spiral going up but um, what uh, Paul Donovan says is actually this time around the wage increases we've seen so far um, can be and are being financed by better productivity and this is exemplified if you remember Johnson got uh, Boris Johnson the Prime Minister of the of UK got wrapped over the knuckles by the statistics authority for claiming that employment is at record levels employment isn't at record levels we're nowhere near the level of employment we had pre-pandemic it's just that unemployment is at record low levels um, and why this matters is that actually we've got the economy now back to producing the same level of output it was pre-pandemic but fewer people are producing that same level of output and that means that though that you know we can afford to pay those fewer people the the, the increase in that greater that productivity increase that's come through without it being inflationary so i think it's a very um uh, telling point that we don't necessarily face this wage price spiral so I think, you know, don't discount and the upside risks. We'll say goodbye for now.